Good morning and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and today we are in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. I want you to think back with me for just a moment to what we've seen to this point in the book of Revelation. We started with the messages to the seven churches. There's a group of seven. Each of them was a specific message of redemption, correction, encouragement, and hope. Even the messages that contained no positive uh, content about that church were still messages of hope because it's still said at the end, these are the things you must fix. And if you do, this is the good things that will happen to you. And he who endures to the end will still inherit whatever the reward is named in that message to that church. So seven messages of redemption, correction, rebuke, forgiveness, encouragement, and promise. And then the lamb is found worthy to open the scroll sealed with the seven seals. And there is the opening of those seven seals. And with the opening of each of those seals, a vehicle of God's judgment was sent out into the world. Now, they weren't his vehicles, but they were under his control. And this is something that's really important for you to understand about the book of Revelation. In this book, a lot of things are freed upon the earth, which do not belong to God. They do not follow God, but they have to be obedient to God. It's very reminiscent of Satan in the book of Job, wandering to and fro through the earth. And he happens to wander through God's throne room. And God says, where have you been? He's like, ah, wandering around through the earth. And God says, did you see my servant Job? And Satan says, I did. And God says, isn't he a model servant? And Job says, sure, but he serves you for nothing. You've blessed everything he's ever touched. Why shouldn't he serve you? Let me touch him. And then he'll turn, he'll turn away and curse you to your face. Now, the devil doesn't obey God, but he can't disobey him. He has to do what God tells him. And he can't touch Job until God gives him permission. So it's the same with so many of these influences in the book of Revelation. They're not influences of God. Those vehicles released when the seven seals were opened are not following God's orders. They're going out on their own to do conquest, to cause war, to create food inequity. Those aren't God's plans for us. Those are the things that people do who don't follow God. And for whatever reason, and I think it's to move the world closer to that final moment when it all will follow God when it all will worship and obey God. If for only that reason, God lets it progress. So with the opening of each of the seven seals, we see one of those vehicles towards final judgment. Then we get the sounding of the seven trumpets. There's silence in heaven. Then there's the sounding of the seven trumpets. And with the sounding of each trumpet, an agent, not a vehicle, an agent, 
of the final judgment is released. A plague or a demonic influence, an agent, the means by which the world is brought to that judgment actively. The vehicles were influences. These agents are demonic spirits, demonic forces that push the world closer to the time of of God's judgment. See the difference? Now we're waiting on the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and of course there's an interlude. But this one is really interesting, and there's a lot packed in here. So I'm going to start in chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed, something like a measuring stick, and I was instructed, go and measure the temple of God, including the altar area, and count those who worship within it. But do not measure the courtyard outside the temple, for the Gentiles will be permitted to keep the holy city under siege for 42 months. 42 months. Let's stop there and deal with this whole measuring thing. This is extremely reminiscent of a vision that Ezekiel has in chapter 40 of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 3, verse 42 through 20. And it is, um, it is exactly what Ezekiel sees. He's given a rod to measure the city of Jerusalem before God judges it. And here, John is given a measuring stick, a rod, a reed, like a measuring stick. Think of it as um, like a bamboo stick or one of those uh, cattail reeds, cattail stalks that you'd find near a pond or or a river. It's like that. It has a specific length so that it can be used, set down, end to end to end, to measure something. And John is instructed to go and measure the temple. It's really an interesting instruction. Because by the time this book is written, Solomon's temple has been smashed to pieces and no longer exists. But he's not really talking about the earthly temple. Go and measure the temple of God, including the altar area, and count those who worship within it. Well, the altar of sacrifice set right outside the Holy of Holies, the altar of public sacrifice, it was in the inner court, the Jewish court. The the temple had really three areas. On the outside, there was the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could enter the court of the Gentiles. It's where Jesus taught. It's where the woman in John chapter 8 is threatened to be stoned. It's where Jesus casts the money changers out of the temple. They're not really in the holy part of the temple, but they're in that Gentile court where all this stuff could take place because everybody was welcome there. The second ring of access in the temple is the inner court. It's the court of the Jews. And unless you were a Jew in good standing and a member of a synagogue, 
coming to do business with God, you couldn't enter there. Gentiles couldn't come in. Only God's people could enter into that inner court. And there was the altar of their sacrifice. And so they would bring their their bird or their sheep or goat or their bull, and they would sacrifice it there on the altar of sacrifice in the court of the Jews where God's people gathered. Inside that, the very center of the temple, there was an area called the Holy of Holies. And there was another altar in there. But it was the altar where the priest went in once a year to offer one sacrifice for the sins of all the people. Only one guy was allowed in there one time a year. So you'll notice that that's excluded here, maybe. If it is included, God's saying, go and measure the temple, including the altar area, which if he means the altar of the huge sacrifice and the Holy of Holies, is really interesting because he says, include the altar area and count all the people who worship therein. Well, that would mean that this is after Jesus and everybody has access to the holiest of holies. Um, And I'm okay with that interpretation. But be aware that you'll see scholars and preachers who'll treat this in any number of ways, what it at least means. And when I'm going through the book of Revelation, I'm often looking for at least it must mean this. This has to be the truth. And at least the truth is he's called to measure the court of the Jews and the place where they give their sacrifice. I think it's very possible that he's measuring the altar of the Holy of Holies or what used to be the Holy of Holies before Jesus died on the cross and the curtain was rent in two and that place where God dwelt was opened up to his people. I'm pretty sure that's what he means here, but at least it means measure the court of the Jews, measure the court that contains the people who belong to me and count them. You see, what you measure, you can then understand. What you measure to an extent, you can control. I used to be in environmental controls, and we always said, you can't control what you don't measure. And and while that's a little bit um, stark for this context, I don't know that God's intent is to control his people, but his his, his intent is certainly to preserve them. His intent is certainly to preserve his people, and he doesn't know exactly how many he has to preserve until they're counted. Have any been lost since we counted them at 160 or 144,000? Probably not. He's probably preserved every one of them. Have some died since? Probably so. Have others come to believe since? Maybe so. He says, John, take this stick, lay it end to end, over and over, across the expanse, the length, the width, the breadth of my temple, the court of my people, and then count them. I want to know how big the area is and how many people are in it because that's going to be the protected area. That's going to be 
the remnant who survive this judgment that's coming. But you don't have to count the outer court. Don't measure the courtyard outside the temple, for the Gentiles will be permitted to trample the holy city under siege for 42 months. Leave them their court because they're going to trash it. They're going to lose all of their senses, all of their filters, all of their constraints and restraints, and they are going to trample what's outside the walls of my people's courtyard. They're going to destroy the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years, 1,260 days. That's a figure that you must bear in mind. It's going to come up again and again and again. I know there are a lot of scholars who have tried to tell you that there's some seven-year great tribulation spelled out in the book of Revelation that relates to the seven weeks of Daniel. No, there's no seven-year period in the book of Revelation. It is this 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days. It is half a perfect time. Seven days is the perfect time in which God created the universe. Seven years is a perfect time. It's a complete time. If something lasted for seven years, it would absolutely come to fruition. And, and in Matthew, Jesus said, if the time hadn't been cut short, no one would have survived. I think he's talking about this, this time of judgment. That's the context from the book of Matthew. So the Gentiles will be allowed, permitted. You notice God doesn't stop them, but he doesn't let them go on and on. He's not going to let them destroy the holy city. He's going to let them keep it under siege. Now think for a moment. In the New Testament church, since the cross, since Jerusalem was crushed in 70 AD and and has never really existed as God's holy city again, where did Jesus say the holy city is? Where is the new Jerusalem? since the cross. It's his church. It's God's church. He says, count my people, measure the area in which they reside in my kingdom, their courtyard, their place in my presence, preserve it. But the world is going to besiege my holy city, my church, for three and a half years, for 42 months, the whole thing is going to come under attack. It'll be preserved, but it's going to bear the attack. Now, this is the place where a lot of people depart and say, sure, Christians have to endure the tribulation for three and a half years, and then they'll get raptured out. I want you to see that that's not what happens here. 
uh, the first part is right. Everybody gets besieged for 42 months. But deliverance comes in the form of something other than rapture. The time is cut short, but not by God saying, get my people out of there. It's just an imperfect time of, of, of tribulation. And you have to ask yourself, how much of that has already happened? In the next section, we're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus described the final days. And, and it's a stark description. But as you look at it, you can begin to see how much of that testing, how much of that, that siege by the world against the church has already happened. It has resulted in those martyrs who John sees clothed in white robes under the altar. The world has besieged the church since the church began. It has killed its prophets since before there was a Christian church, when they were the Old Testament people of God. Those are still God's people. He made a covenant with them. He's not going to go back on that covenant. In fact, Jesus said it's now been fulfilled. God entered into a covenant with his people. And since God has had a people, the world has besieged them. But it hasn't won. In, in the first chapter of John's gospel, he says, in him was light. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines and continues forever to shine in the darkness, and the darkness can't measure it, can't comprehend it, can't control it, can't overcome it. See? You're going to endure some hardship in this lifetime. Because we are here under siege by the world. And I can tell you that in my lifetime, it's gotten worse. I was born in the early 60s, 1961. I grew up in Oregon in the 60s. I knew hippies. I saw the real hippies. I saw the real counterculture. I lived through that that counterculture that said, God is dead. And the very interesting counterculture to that, also who looked like hippies and played guitars and shared their music and grew their hair long, didn't bathe frequently, but who sang songs about Jesus and songs about the end of all time. There, there rose up this real interest in how it was going to be at the very end. And there were people who really believed the end was near. Remember, in the 1960s, you'll still see photographs of people carrying signs that say the end is near. We really thought it was. We thought nuclear war was going to break out and the world was going to come to an end. But it didn't. And you know what? It hasn't gotten any better. 
in my lifetime, the world has not gotten any better. It still besieges the church and harder now than at any time in my life. My, my nation is right now embroiled in this weird argument because the Supreme Court said abortion is not a federal issue. It should go back to the states and each state should get to vote on it with their people and their representatives who are more directly accountable to their people. The federal government should not be holding this action as something it can sanction. It's exactly what it's it's exactly what should have been decided in the first place in the 60s. It's not a ban on abortion and yet the people on the left part of my country are going bananas because they think their rights are in danger. You know who they've attacked in the last week? The Catholic Church. They have lined up and gathered outside Catholic churches to protest against the Catholic Church. Like the Catholic Church has anything to do with this. They're just they're just striking out. And who do they strike out at? The church. If people get hurt in this process, mark my words, it will be Christians. It will be the church. Everything I see full of vitriol from the left in the newspapers and on websites says, ooh, those Christians are doing this. Wow. How dare you awful Christians take up the rights of voiceless unborn children, which used to be a liberal keystone. Speaking up for the defenseless and the voiceless, that used to be the heart of liberalism. But liberals today aren't liberals. They're socialists. They want control of every aspect of your life. And when they don't get it, who do they blame? Christians. The siege, my friends, is about to get worse. As it has gotten worse throughout my lifetime, I thought I wouldn't see this final step in my lifetime. And maybe it's not the final step. Maybe it's the step before the final step. I don't know how bad it can get, but we're going to find out. The siege is going to intensify now. The church is going to continue to be attacked. You know what that does? It causes the measurement to get smaller. It causes the head count to shrink. It causes it to be very accurate because it becomes very clear who's in and who's out. And that make no mistake about it. That's what this paragraph is about. God wants to know who's in and who's out. Measure them, count them, because they're going to come under siege. He will preserve you if you will be preserved, if you will stand in the church, if you will stand with Christ, for Christ, for the things that are godly and right. But if you are going to compromise your faith in order to please the world or blend in or or try to somehow find middle ground, then go back and read the messages to the seven churches and see how God thinks about that, right? Uh, That's not what he's looking for. And he promised the folks at Laodicea, if that's the way you're going to be, 
you're going to end up ejected from my mouth, ejected from my church. When the courtyard is measured, you will find yourselves on the outside and your head won't be in the head count. This stuff is getting real now, right? Because God is measuring who's in and who's out. I don't know that there's an encouragement here today. I think I have to leave you with the question. Are you in or out? I think it's essential in each Christian life that we periodically take inventory. Am I, live, am, I, am I living like I'm in or am I living like I'm out? Am I an outsider? Am I a Gentile? Am I not saved or am I? Not did I say the words to the prayer once upon, uh, once upon a time. Once in my life, I knelt at the altar, so I'm, I'm done. No. No, the question isn't, did you say the words? The question isn't, did you get, quote, saved? The question is, do you know him? Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Did we not have great worship services? Did we not speak in tongues? Did we not raise the dead? And I will say to them, go away from me. I don't know you. Oh, that scares me. And you know what? Let me just be really honest with you. If I look back through the last 45 years, it's actually 47 since I accepted Jesus Christ. It's, in fact, 47 years this month. If I look back on the 47 years since I knelt at the altar and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart, there are moments in that journey, some of them pretty significant moments that lasted three or four years at a time. There are moments in that journey when I thank God that he sustained me and I didn't die in that time because I don't know that I was on the inside. I don't know that I was doing God's will. I don't know that I was living right in those times. Now, God may be a whole lot more gracious than I even can comprehend. And I'm pretty much a fan of grace. <laughs> I have to be because I need extreme grace. But but I have to tell you very honestly, if I'm taking really honest inventory, fearless and searching moral inventory, I've done wrong things in my life that if my salvation were called into account at the moment I was in the midst of doing those things, I would be horribly ashamed. I would be guilty of, of mistreating others, of not representing Christ faithfully. Sometimes I was even trying to represent Christ, but I was not on track. And, and I don't know. Before this reckoning comes, I want to know. I want to take some time today and take that inventory again. Would you take that inventory with me? 
is your life right now in a place where you have confidence that if in a heartbeat, in the next heartbeat, you were suddenly to find yourself standing before God in the throne room of heaven, Jesus could walk in and you have every confidence he would know who you are. And he would walk up and wrap his arms around you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he'd look to the father and say, Lord, there's no reason to judge this one. His sin is covered in my blood. Enter into your reward. If not, rather than encourage you today, I want to leave you with this issue, this this need to take a moment and pray right where you are. I'm going to be done in a few seconds. Turn off the radio, turn off the podcast, just sit in silence for a moment and say, Lord, can we just take stock for a minute here? Is there anything in my life that doesn't please you right now? If so, open the closet door and dig it out of the pile of junk that I hide in there and bring it out and show it to me and I'll give it up. I'll let you take it. I want it. I want everything gone that isn't you. That doesn't put me in the heart of your temple. That doesn't put me in the heart of your presence. Anything that keeps me from being yours today, would you take it out? You're knocking. I'll open the door. You want to see the closets that I hide from everybody else when I clean house? There's the doors and they're open. Please. Help me take stock today, Lord. Help me take inventory of all the junk I'm still carrying that is holding me back, that is hurting me, that is hanging me up, that is strangling the life out of me and maybe holding me back from your kingdom. I believe this. I believe if you have the heart to do that today, you're not on the outside. People on the outside don't take that kind of inventory. So today, let's take that inventory and let's hand to God anything that's keeping us from living in the heart of his will today.